Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There are some things that can only come into being in slowness. There are some people that we can only become in slowness. Welcome to That Which Carries. This is the podcast of Fur. We are a collaborative artist creating new experiences of Christianity through contemporary art, ritual design and pop culture artifacts. Our podcast is born out of the artworks themselves and reflects on them as well as all things theology and the arts. This series tracks our newest collaborative performance artwork, called the Honest Citizen Kindness and Courage Club. We are a club of 20 people who started regularly gathering together in lockdown to share honestly about the ways in which challenging times like these bring about our citizen instincts. What we mean by that is instincts to try and grab for what we need or want at the expense of other people in all kinds of direct or passive ways. These instincts are sometimes based on a scarcity mindset that believes that we must grab and snatch in order to have enough or to feel like we are enough, rather than trusting in the peaceful process of sharing ourselves and our resources. So we confess our citizenship to each other without judging each other, and then we try together to imagine and ritualize more kind and courageous ways of living through these times. This is episode 5 in the Honest Citizen series. What you'll hear is the kind of thing that you might hear in one of our club meetings. It's a confession about hurry and my addiction to it, maybe all of our addictions to it. But slowly and unhurriedly, this podcast becomes a story about what lies on the other side of a hurried life. Like all of our stuff, We think about things theologically in this podcast, but listening to it won't mean you agree with me. Our club members are a variety of people. Some of them share our faith, but not all of them. At the end of this episode, I'll finish up by sharing with you a new ritual design that we've created. It's an audio meditation that we've made to help us to transition from a state of hurriedness to restfulness. As everyone now knows, most of us were split into two polarities when we went to lockdown. On the one end were those of us who had to give up hurry cold turkey because suddenly there was nothing to be hurried in. We were furloughed and suddenly there was nothing to do except bake sourdough and binge watch Tiger King. On the other end, some of us, especially those of us who were homeschooling children whilst working from home, felt like we were kind of led down this smack alley of the hurry drug. It was in plentiful supply, there was loads to be hurried about, and hurry was the drug for solving our problem of having just simply too much to do. And I was in this category of people, so it felt like the worst time in my life to try and eliminate hurry. I've never felt more in need of remaining in a state of hurry than than I have this year. But even so, somehow within that, I picked up the book, um, 
by John Mark Comer called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I'm not someone who's always actually running around the place. A lot of my work is just sitting in front of a computer, but in my head, I've always felt like my head was a rushed place. I've, I've known myself to be a hurried person. And I don't think anyone actually champions the idea of being in a state of hurry. I think most of us would probably say it's bad. But since most of us actually are hurried, since most of us do do it and our lives are kind of living advocates of hurry, then do we really think it's bad? Like therapists tend to say now, in, in one sense, things like alcohol, drug and gambling addictions are not the problems, they're the solutions to a deeper problem that before you can deal with the problems that they create themselves, you need to recognize the job they've been doing to relieve and to solve some of those deeper issues like abandonment or rejection or grief or fear. And so hurry, like any addiction, has been working for me in some ways to help me to feel safe and secure and in control and and to even make me feel whole, like through it that I could reach everything I need and that my existence is real and justified by my hurried busyness. So I confess that I love being hurried. Hurry feels pretty good when I'm adrenaline up to my eyeballs. Hurry looks pretty cute when I'm in it. It looks and feels like control an achievement, like I'm beating time and getting the most out of it. But after reading this book, or through reading this book, I had my first unhurried look at hurry, and it's not so cute anymore. I had thought hurry was a way of getting the most out of life and of people, but I actually think it has robbed me of life and of people and really lies at the heart of my own citizenship. This is what I discovered was happening when I was hurried. Firstly, I realized that in the state of hurry, in the moment that I have before me, in any given moment, when I'm hurried, I'm unable to explore or think about or try out any alternative or creative ways of being or doing other than what is my natural default. So in any situation, I have these neuro pathways that are formed where the more I've done something in a certain situation, the deeper the groove in my neuro pathways that's formed. And so they're like these default tracks that I take. And when I'm hurried, I don't actually give myself the space or the time in that moment to think of any other way of responding to a situation or being or acting in a situation other than that default track. Even if that default track is something completely dysfunctional, it's all I've got as a way of being and acting in a moment when I'm hurried. And it makes me think of this song by Duke Special where one of the lines he says is, um, we've only got this moment to live. Look at all the colors at our fingertips. And I feel like if you don't live in that moment in an unhurried way, all of those colors at your fingertips, all of these options of ways of living, um, even if you can see them, you certainly can't access them. They're not at your fingertips in, in, in a hurried moment. So the irony of it is, is that 
the more I'm hurried, the more I'm actually stuck because I just am unable to in any way move beyond my natural instincts and my default repetitive ways of, of being. And so I can't get beyond myself to either the values that I want to grow into, like courage and kindness, nor to the person that I want to become like because I'm trapped in myself, in my hurriedness. In the end, when I took an unhurried look at hurry, I saw what Eugene Peterson famously said, that hurry is a form of violence. It's many forms of violence. One of my dear friends lost her brother to a speeding driver who crashed into him and his friend while they were walking down a country road in the south of England and instantly killed them both. This, of course, is an extreme example of hurry as a form of violence. But it's only extreme in the fact that the driver hit two people and killed them. The particular outcome is unusual in that it was such an immediate case of cause and effect. She hurried and they died. But her hurry itself is not extreme. Rushing around in a car or in any context is not extreme. It's very common for all of us. But it's just that the effects of it are not always so immediate, so particularly devastating and so forensic. But the hurry itself is still the same and it still has some kind of violent effects on ourselves and others like children being hurried in their development by rushed, overbearing parents, or workers developing PTSD by hurried and insane organizational goals, or someone carrying unresolved grief because they've been rushed to get over her by impatient mates. Hurry is a form of violence. It's many forms of violence. But if hurry doesn't look so cute anymore, unhurriedness, good as it is, was hard for me. And I had only begun with three baby steps. Firstly, I started off by just standing up straight, by not hunching myself forward like someone who's always trying to kind of pierce a time barrier in front of me and race ahead of time. I've truly spent my whole life walking with my head and my shoulders kind of hunched forward as though I were trying to become a kind of horizontal being, an arrow charging through time and beating it. So to just stand up straight, in line with the moment, at peace with the one piece of space that my body is capable of occupying at any given moment. Just that felt like such a heavy restraint on me. The second thing I tried out was doing each activity in a way where all I was thinking about was what I was doing in that moment and not also thinking about the next 100 things that I planned to do after the thing I was doing then. And then the last thing I tried was to not be a hurrier of other people. Because when you're a hurried person, it's very hard to not then become someone who hurries those around you. And so I tried out not always herding my family ferociously into my racing schedule, but to just let them do things at their own pace and in their own way. Each of these tiny changes towards unhurriedness felt like a smack in the face with this feeling of being recklessly out of control it felt like letting go of the steering wheel on the freeway it felt bonkers to just let time race past you and people race past you and to feel like you're achieving only something in a moment and not everything in that moment but why was it such a big deal 
Why such big reactions to something so whatever like just not being hurried? After all, all I was doing was just not hurrying. I hadn't stopped working or even stopped being busy. I was just unhurried. So why such a drama? Well, I think one thing is that we don't experience unhurriedness as unhurriedness at all. I think like drug addicts coming off a drug, normality feels like anything but normal. So unhurriedness, when we try it out at first, doesn't feel like a nice normal pace. We experience all forms of unhurriedness as slowness. Anything that is properly unhurried feels like we're being slow and probably is relative to everyone hurrying around us. The thing is that even with our cultural leanings these days towards present-mindedness and our murmurings about living less hurriedly and more gently, slowness itself is still problematized. Hyperproductivity is still mega-trending, silence is still terrifying, and slowness is still fully stigmatized. I know this. I see it through the life of my son who has Down syndrome, which literally means he's ontologically slow. So he's not embracing slowness, he is slow. The only thing that he's fast at is joy. He began smiling at six weeks, which I think is pretty good for any baby. But apart from joy, he's slow at everything. But for all our sentiments towards a slower pace, who of us would welcome disability or injury or aging or anything else that would inevitably slow us down? I could believe that in our culture we might actually create, if it hasn't already been created, a slowness therapist. Someone whose job it is to teach us to embrace slowness. But my worry with that is that it would be token, that it would be run by some privileged person whose trust fund allows them to move as slowly as they like through life without incurring any pressures from it. That it would be a consumerist, stylized version of slowness. I don't think if people wanted a slowness therapist, they would go to someone who was actually ontologically slow, who just was slow and couldn't help it. That would be absurd because real, unstylized, uncommercialized slowness is still problematized. In our culture, time equals money and money equals God. And in this context, slowness inevitably becomes a living heresy. And where slowness is hated upon like this, slow people become hurried people. And one of the reasons I am such a hurried person is actually because I'm a slow person. And it took me a while to realize that because one of the things about being a slow person is that it takes a while to realize it. I'm slow. I'm a slow thinker. I'm a slow worker. I'm a slow producer. I'm a slow befriender. And as I reflect back on my life, the rare times when a teacher or a boss or a friend has given me permission to move at a slower pace than them, what they've got back from me has always been way better and they have been better off for it. What if we were to stop using time as a measuring device at all? The Jewish theologian Abraham Heschel says that that is exactly what eternity is. That eternity is time when it's no longer a metric. I really wonder though if us as a culture now have now no idea how to conceive of time as anything else. What is time if not a measuring device? 
But if Heschel is right, then slowness is not actually living heresy, but living orthodoxy. So my hurry addiction meant that when I tried out unhurriedness, I didn't experience it as healthy normality, but as slowness. And because slowness is a sin within a capitalist society, it left me feeling reckless and shameful. But I think there's another deeper reason why unhurriedness is such a drama, and that's that life is hard. It's demanding and it's stressful and bad things happen, and we know almost nothing and we can control even less. And within that, hurry is one legal option that we have readily available for dealing with all of that and for feeling a little less like we might drown in either chaos or misery. So, life is hard. Hurry helps us feel better within it, but it's ultimately as useless to our well-being as any other hard drug. But we hate slowness. So what? Here's where I want to try and answer that with theology. And I don't mean hardcore theology like Calvin's treatise or Karl Barth. I want to just actually talk about a spoof film um, made in the 1970s called The Life of Brian. Um, and it was made by the Monty Python crew who were not at all Christians. Um, and they were kind of like this sort of 1970s version of Saturday Night Live or the Lonely Island crew. And as I talk about it, it won't, it won't be immediately obvious why what I have to say has anything to do with hurry. But if you're patient and we move through this slowly, we will get there, I promise. Okay, so The Life of Brian is a spoof of a genre of films that are historical stories of the life of Jesus. And like all films in this genre, um, The Life of Brian is way too beige. Like the film's color palette is dismal. The ground is beige, the buildings are beige, all their clothing is beige. Um, but the thing is that the film is so funny that you stop caring about how dull it is on the eye after a while. And there's this one spoof scene where they are retelling the famous story of Jesus standing on the top of a mountain, giving a socially disruptive and very revolutionary TED talk about the kingdom of God. So to understand the jokes in this scene, you need to understand what the historical Jesus of 2000 years ago was actually trying to achieve in his speech, um, which is better known as the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. And in this famous speech, he says things like, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And what Jesus wanted people to take from this sermon was an understanding of what is really true and how life really ultimately works when you view it from the perspective of God. So in his perspective, people who may suffer for being humble and gentle in this life are specially honored by God, and people who are rejected in this world for doing good are privileged in God's eyes. So his speech was kind of like a fact file from the kingdom of heaven. He's saying this is how things really are and how they work. And if you were to take his words seriously, you would want to become all of these things that he's saying that God values, like someone who's peacemaking and merciful and seeking righteousness and loving your enemies and all of that. But the Monty Python crew used this scene to comment on lots of things like how the teachings of Jesus have been translated or mistranslated throughout history. 
But they also want to comment on the hypocrisy of people who've heard Jesus' teachings throughout history and done the exact opposite of what he's teaching them. So in this scene, there's this moment where there's a group of people at the back of the audience and they hear Jesus say, blessed are the meek, to which one of the women replies, oh, oh, isn't that lovely because they have a hell of a time. And you get this sense from her glib reaction that there's no way that she's going to actually change to become more meek herself as a result of this. Instead of being motivated to become more meek because the meek are actually in reality quite blessed, the woman and her companions hear Jesus' words as a consolation prize for the meek, perhaps for the meek people that they may be living aggressively towards, and therefore hear in Jesus' words a kind of vindication for their aggressive way of living because God will compensate anyone they're aggressive towards. And in the film, the audience who hears Jesus speak are clearly not going to change anything in their lives precisely because of what Jesus has said. And this is funny because changing their lives is exactly what Jesus is trying to do with these facts from heaven that aren't meant to simply console the weak or absolve the aggressor. He's just saying how things really are, that those who aren't pushing to try and grab the earth, that those who are meek will be blessed. In fact, so much so that he says they'll inherit the earth. It will just be given to them. Fact. Whether or not you feel consoled by it, this is just reality under the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a lens upon reality. It's just what you what you see when all other lenses have been removed. It's just raw reality. A really good example of this is in the historical record of Jesus meeting a financial extorter called Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus had a successful racket extorting the local poor Jewish communities. He was the worst. Uh, but when he had a meeting with Jesus, he didn't go away from that encounter with him feeling like, oh good, it turns out that um, God is going to console those I'm extorting and as such I'm almost justified to continue doing what I'm doing. In fact, what he did was he gave up his racket and actually returned the money he'd stolen to those communities and compensated them himself. And this was because he realized that the virtues of Jesus' political philosophy, or what Jesus calls the kingdom of God, um, like love of enemies and showing mercy, they weren't just feel-goods, they were actually the way to be blessed. So with this in mind, hear what Jesus says a bit later on. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So a yoke, if you, if you don't already know, is a piece of wood that sits across the back of two work animals, like two oxen, and it helps them to be able to carry their workload. And... The reason I share this passage with you is that until I read John Mark Comer's book, I hadn't realized that although I've read this passage loads of times, I had been reading it wrong. So I had been reading it as though I just sort of focused on the first part of it where Jesus says, come to me if you're weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. And I'd, I'd been reading it in this way where I'd kind of thought that Jesus was almost like this kind of spiritual spa day, that I could just live however I want and in this really frenzied, dysfunctional way. And, and that was fine. 
because when I got burnt out from that, I could just go to Jesus and he'd kind of pamper me, give me a spiritual spa day, um, re-energize me so that I could return back to this dysfunctional, frenzied, hurried way of living. Coma's point, though, is that whilst Jesus will receive anyone in any state of living, and if they're burnt out, he will care for their soul and give them rest, that he's not just a spiritual retreat or spa day that functions as this kind of pressure valve to help enable our dysfunctional ways of living. If he was, it wouldn't make any sense of him saying that he has this yoke for us, because why would you need an instrument of work at a spa retreat? So Coma's point is that what Jesus wants to give us is not just um, a break from our frenzied, burn-ourselves-to-the-ground way of living that restores us so we can go back to it, but to give us a whole different way of living altogether, one that enables us to live easily through a hard life, and that he himself and his way of life is that strategy. So what about hurry? Well, one of the strategies within the easy yoke, one of the kind of components of this this way of life that, that Jesus offers us as an alternative to our dysfunctions, is rest. Real, deep, disciplined rest. It's it, it takes the form of one day a week where within that one day we do no work for a full 24 hours. This is what the Bible calls the Sabbath. And it started right back in the beginning in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, where there's this poem that talks about creation as though the act of creation were done over a six-day week where God then rested on the seventh day. And from there emerges this tradition and law of the Sabbath, where one day a week the Jewish people would do nothing. There was, there was no work for a full 24-hour period. And when it's given as a law, it's described by God. This, this day, the Sabbath, is described as being blessed. And in the text, it's described as being blessed in the same way that God describes humans being blessed, in that we have this generative power. So humans are blessed because we're able to regenerate ourselves and we can have sex and then produce children. So in that way, we are blessed. But here... The text is saying that there's two ways that we're able to generate life. One is through sex, and the other is through rest, that rest actually generates life for us. So it's getting your head around the fact that there is this this day, this one day a week of doing nothing, can actually be as powerful in our lives and life-giving and life-generating as sex can be. So I, I can't remember all the statistics that Coma quoted from his various studies, but he goes through in the book about how there are various pieces of research that have been done and studies into communities or cultures where there is a rhythm of having real rest one 24-hour period every week. And what these studies showed was that life expectancy was considerably greater for those communities. And so in that sense, literally rest is, is generative. It, the, the days that you rest actually create new days in the future and extend your life. And this goes back to the way in which hurry looks cute until you take an unhurried look at it. Because 
hurry looks like it's a way of getting the most out of life, but actually not resting not only robs us of all of those colors at our fingertips within each kind of present moment we live through, but it also robs us of future colors, of, of future moments, of, of future years. And the studies were quite astonishing, really, because, again, I can't remember the exact statistics, but he talks about how there were there was one case where it was sort of like he was saying there was one community where they'd practiced Sabbath for 10 years and whatever number of days practicing a Sabbath every week for 10 years adds up to, that was the amount of time that this community's average life expectancy was extended by. So the kind of mass of it really, really added up. So this easy yoke that Jesus talks about is a way of living that doesn't change the fact that life is hard. It just shows you an easy way to live through a hard life. Embracing unhurriedness is one part of the easy yoke that helps us to deal with a hard life. We finish this podcast with an audio meditation for you to listen to that we've created using texts from the work of Abraham Heschel. It's designed to be listened to at the end of your working week and to help you to make the transition from work to Sabbath rest. beginning, time was one, eternal. But time undivided, time eternal, would be unrelated to the world of space. So time was divided into seven days and entered into an intimate relationship with the world of space. Technical civilization, 
is man's conquest of space. It is a triumph frequently achieved by sacrificing an essential ingredient of existence, namely time. In technical civilization, we expend time to gain space. To enhance our power in the world of space is our main objective. Yet to have more does not mean to be more. Indeed, we know what to do with space, but don't know what to do about time, except to make it subservient to space. The Bible is more concerned with time than with space. It pays more attention to generations, to events, than to countries or things. In the Ten Commandments, the creator of the universe identifies himself by an event in history, by an event in time, the liberation of the people from Egypt. And he proclaims, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth. The first holy thing in the history of the world was not a thing, but a time. The seventh day was the first thing called holy. The meaning of the Sabbath is to celebrate time rather than space. Six days a week we live under the tyranny of things of space. On the Sabbath we try to become attuned to holiness in time. It is a day on which we are called upon to share in what is eternal in time to turn from the results of creation to the mystery of creation. device rather than a realm in which we abide. The seventh day is a mine where spirit's precious metal can be found with which to construct the palace in time, a dimension 
in which the human is at home with the divine. The seventh day is a palace in time. The Sabbath is represented not as an interlude, but the climax of living. It is an opportunity to mend our tattered lives, to collect rather than dissipate time. The Sabbath is the inspirer, the other days, the inspired. We abstain primarily from any activity that aims at remaking or reshaping the things of space. Humanity's royal privilege to conquer nature is suspended on the seventh day. The seventh day is the armistice in humanity's cruel struggle for existence, a truce in all its conflicts, personal and social, peace between human and human, human and nature, peace within the person. A day on which handling money is considered a desecration, on which humanity avows her independence of that which is the world's chief idol. The seventh day is the exodus from tension, the liberation of humanity from her own muddiness, the installation of humanity as a sovereign in the world of time. of view from which time can be sensed, from the point of view of space and from the point of view of spirit. Looking out of the window of a swiftly moving railroad car, we have the impression that the landscape is moving while we ourselves are sitting still. Similarly, when gazing at reality while our souls are carried away by spatial things, time appears to be in constant motion. However, when we learn to understand that it is the spatial things that are constantly running out, we realize that time is that which never expires. 
that it is the world of space which is rolling through the infinite expanse of time. We should not speak of the flow or passage of time, but of the flow or passage of space through time. It is not time that dies, but the human body that dies in time. Every one of us occupies a portion of space. We take it up exclusively. The portion of space which my body occupies is taken up by myself in exclusion of anyone else. Yet no one possesses time. There is no moment which I possess exclusively. This very moment belongs to all living people as it belongs to me. We share time. We own space. The source of time is eternity. That the secret of being is the eternal within time. We cannot solve the problem of time through the conquest of space, through either pyramids or fame. We can only solve the problem of time through sanctification of time. To the person alone, time is elusive. To people with God, time is eternity in disguise. Eternity utters a day.
Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode, which is the last in the Honor Citizen series. You can see all our other projects on our website at furproduction.com. And if you like what we do, consider joining our small group of founding patrons. Their support currently covers half of our monthly costs. So with your help, we will be able to continue to do this work. For all our latest, follow us on Instagram at furproduction or Twitter fur underscore production. This episode includes original music by Fur. Fur. Christianity throughout. Christianity as art.